8. He was mainly spent in thinking out his plans of discovery drawing his maps, adjusting his instruments, sending out his ships, receiving the reports of his captains. His aims were 3. To discover, to add to the greatness and wealth of Portugal, and to spread the Christian faith. 1. First of all, he was trying to find a way round Africa to India for the sake of the new knowledge itself and for the power which that knowledge would give, as his mind was above all things interested in the scientific question. It was the side which was foremost in his plans. He was really trying to find out the shape of the world, and to make men feel more at home in it, that the dread of the great unknown round the little island of civilized and habitable world might be lightened. He was working in the mist that so long had hung round Christendom, chilling every enterprise. Thus the whole question of the world and its shape, its countries and climates, its seas and continents, on every side of practical exploration was bound to be before Prince Henry as a theorist, the practical question which he helped to solve was only a part of this wider whole. Did this Africa stretching opposite to him in his retreat at Sagres never end till it reached the southern pole? Or was it possible to get round into the eastern ocean? Since Ptolemy's map had held the field, it had been heresy to suppose this, but in the age of Greek and Phoenician voyages it had been guessed by some, and perhaps even proved by others. The Tyrians whom Pharaoh Necho sent down the Red Sea more than 600 years before Christ, brought back after three years a story of their finding Africa an island, and so returning by the west and north through the Straits of Gibraltar, the same tradition, after a long time of discredit, was now reviving upon the maps of the 14th century, and, in spite of the terrible stories of the Arabs, Henry was able in the first years of the 15th to find men who would try the forlorn hope of a direct sea route from Europe to the Indies. We have seen how far the charts and guidebooks of the time just before this had advanced Christian knowledge of the world, how the southern coastline of Asia is traced by Marco Polo, and how even Madagascar is named, though not visited, by the same traveler. The Florentine map of 1351 proves that a fairly true guess of the shape of Africa could be made even before persistent exploration began with Henry of Portugal, the Arab settlements on the east coast of Africa and their trade with the Malabar coast, though still kept as a close monopoly for Islam, had thoroughly opened up a line of navigation, that was ready, as it were, for the first Europeans who could strike into it and press the Moorish pilots into a new service. Discovery was thus anticipated when the coasts of West and South had once been rounded. Beyond this, the vague knowledge of the Guinea coast already gained through the Sahara caravan trade was improved by the prince himself, during his stay at Ceuta, into the certainty that if the great western hump of Africa beyond Bajadar could be passed, his caravels would come into an eastern current, passing the Gold and Ivory Coast, which might lead straight to India, and at any rate would be connected by an overland traffic with the Mediterranean. 2. Again, Henry was founding upon his work of exploration an empire for his country, at first perhaps only thinking of the straight sea passage as the possible key of the Indian trade, it became clearer with every fresh discovery that the European kingdom might and must be connected by a chain of forts and factories with the rich countries for whose sake all these barren coasts were passed. in any case, and in the eyes of ordinary men, the riches of the east were the plain and primary reason of the explorations. Science had its own aims, but to gain an income for its work it must promise some definite gain, and the chief hope of Henry's captains was that the wealth now flowing by the overland routes to the Levant would in time, as the prize of Portuguese daring, go by the waterway, without delay or fear of plunder or Arab middlemen, to Lisbon and Oporto, this would repay all the trouble and all the cost, 
and silence all who murmured, for this Indian trade was the prize of the world, and for the sake of this Rhone had destroyed Palmyra, and attacked Arabia and held Egypt, and struggled for the mastery of the Tigris, for the same thing half the wars of the Levant had been waged, and by this the Italian republics, Venice, Genoa, and Pisa, had grown to greatness. 3. Lastly, Henry was a crusader with Islam and a missionary with the heathen, of him fully as much as of Columbus, it may be said, that if he aimed at an empire, it was a Christian one, and from the time of the first voyages his captains had orders not merely to discover and to trade, but to convert, till his death he hoped to find the land of Priester John, the half-true, half-fabulous Christian priest king of the outer world, so long cut off from Christendom by the Mohammedan states at this time many things were drawing Western Europe towards the East and towards discovery, the progress of science and historic knowledge, the records and suggestions of travelers, the development of the Christian nations, the position of Portugal and the spirit of her people, all these lines met, as it were, in Henry's time and nation and person, and from that meeting came the results of Columbus and Diego and Magellan, in the earlier chapters we have tried to trace the preparation along these slowly converging paths. For the discoveries of the 15th century, we started with that body of knowledge and theory about the world which the Roman Empire bequeathed to Christendom, and which in the earlier Middle Ages was worked upon by the Arabs, and we gained some idea, from the sayings of Muslim geographers and from the doings of Muslim warriors, of the hindrance as well as of the help that Islam gave to European expansion. We saw that during the great struggle of Christianity and of the old order with barbarism, the chief energy of our Western world in discovery or extension of any sort took the shape of pilgrimage. Then, as time went on, it was possible to see that the Saracens, who had begun as destroyers in the South, were acting as teachers and civilizers upon Europe, and that the Vikings, who as pirates in the North seemed raised up to complete the ruin of Latin civilization, were really waking it into a new activity. In the Crusades this activity, which had already founded the Kingdom of Russia on one side and touched America on the other, seemed to pass from the northern seamen into every Christian nation and every class of society, and with the conversion of the Northmen their place as the discoverers and leaders of the Christian world fitted in with the other movements of Mediterranean commerce and war and devotion. Even the pilgrims of the Crusading Age were now no longer distinctive, they were often, as individuals, members of other classes, traders, fighters, or travelers who, after gaining a firm foothold in Syria, began the exploration of the further east. The three great discovering energies of the 13th and 14th centuries in land travel, navigation, and science were all seen to be results, in whole or in part, of the Crusades themselves, and in following the more important steps of European travel and trade and proselytism from the Holy Land to China. It became more and more evident that this practical finding out of the treasures of Cathay and the Indies was the necessary preparation for the attempts of Genoese and Portuguese to open up the sea route as another and a safer way to the source of the same treasures. Lastly, the intermittent and uncertain ventures of the 14th century seamen, Italian, Spanish, French, or English, to coast round Africa or to find the Indies by the southern route to reach a definite end without any clear plan of means to that end and the revival in theoretical geography, which was trying at the same time to fill up the gaps of knowledge by tradition or by probability seemed to offer a clear contrast and a clear foreshadowing also of Prince Henry's method. Even his nearest foreigners, in seamanship or in map-making were strikingly different from himself. 
they were too much in the spirit of Ptolemy and of ancient science, they neglected fact for hypothesis, for clever guessing, and so their work was spasmodic and unfruitful, or at least disappointing. It was true enough that each generation of Christian thought was less in fault than the one before it, but it was not till the 15th century, till Henry had set the example, that exploration became systematic and continuous. To Marco Polo and men like him we owe the beginnings of the art and science of discovery among the learned, to the Portuguese is due at least the credit of making it a thing of national interest, and of freeing it from a false philosophy, to find out by incessant and unwearying search what the world really was, and not to make known facts fit in with the ideas of some thinker on what the world ought to be. This we found to be the main difference between Cosmos or even Ptolemy and any true leader of discovery, for a real advance of knowledge. Fancy must follow experiment, and no merely hypothetical system or universe as shown in Holy Scripture, would do any longer. We have come to the time when explorers were not Ptolemaics or Strabonians or Scripturists, but naturalists men who examined things afresh, for themselves. These various objects are all involved in the one central aim of discovery, but they are not lost in it. To know this world we live in and to teach men the new knowledge was the first thing which makes Henry what he is in universal history, his other aims are those of his time and his nation, but they are not less a part of his life, and he succeeded in them all, if in part his work was for all time and in part seemed to pass away after a hundred years, that was due to the exhaustion of his people, what he did for his countrymen was realized by others, but the start, the inspiration, was his own, he persevered for fifty years 1412-60 till within sight of the goal, and though he died before the full result of his work was seen, it was nonetheless his due when it came. We find these results put down to the credit of others, but if Columbus gave Castile and Leon a new world in 1492, if Diego reached India in 1498, if Diaz rounded the Cape of Tempests or of Good Hope in 1486, if Magellan made the circuit of the globe in 1522, their teacher and master was nonetheless Henry the Navigator. Chapter VIII. Prince Henry and the Capture of Ciudad, 1415. We have seen how the Kingdom of Portugal itself was almost an offspring of the Crusades. They had left behind them a thirst for wealth and for a wider life on one side, and a broken Muslim power on the other, which opened the way and stirred the enterprise of every maritime state. We know that Lisbon had long been an active center of trade with the Hans towns, Flanders, and England and now the projected conquest of Ceuta and the appeal of the conqueror of Algebarota for a great national effort found the people prepared. A royal prince could do what a private man could not, and Portugal, more fully developed than any other of the Christian kingdoms, was ready to expand abroad without fear at home. Even before the conquest of Ceuta, in 1410 or 1412, Henry had begun to send out his caravels past Cape Mon, which had so long been with Sibajander the Finisterre of Africa. The first object of these ships was to reach the Guinea coast by outflanking the great western shoulder of the continent. Once there, the gold and ivory and slave trade would pass away from the desert caravans to the European coasters. Then the eastern bend of Africa, along the bites of Benin and Biafra, might be followed to the Indies, if this were possible, as some had thought, if not. The first stage of the work would have to be taken up again till men had found and had rounded the southern cape. The outflanking of Guinea proved to be only a part of the outflanking of Africa, but it was far more than half the battle, just as India was the final prize of full success. So the Gold Coast was the reward of the first chapter in that success. 
but of these earlier expeditions nothing is known in detail. The history of the African voyages begins with the War of 1415, and the new knowledge it brought to Henry of the Sahara and the Guinea coast and of the tribes of Chanilures and Negroes on the Niger and the Gambia. In 1414, when Edward was 23, Pedro 22, and Henry 20, King John planned an attack on Ceuta, the great Moorish port on the African side of the Straits of Gibraltar. The three princes had all asked for knighthood, their father at first proposed to celebrate a year of tournaments, but at the suggestion of the treasurer of Portugal, John Afonso de Lenquer, he decided on this African crusade instead, for the same strength and money might as well be spent in conquests from the Moslem as in sham fights between Christians. So after reconnoitring the place, and lulling the suspicions of Aragon and Granada by a pretense of declaring war against the Count of Holland, King John gained the formal consent of his nobles at Torres Vedras, and set sail from Lisbon on St. James Day, July 25, 1415, as foretold by the dying Queen Philippa, twelve days before, that splendid woman, who had shared the throne for eight and twenty years, and who had trained her sons to be fit successors of her husband as the leaders of Portugal and the examples of all Christians, was now cut off by death from a sight of their first victories. Her last thought was for their success. She spoke to Edward of a king's true vocation, to Pedro of his knightly duties in the help of widows and orphans, to Henry of a general's care for his men. On the 13th, the last day of her illness, she roused herself to ask what wind was blowing so strong against the house, and hearing it was the north, sank back and died, exclaiming, It is the wind for your voyage, that must be about St. James Day. It would have been false respect to delay. The spirit of the queen, the crusaders felt, was with them, urging them on. By the night of the 25th of July the fleet had left the Tagus. On the 27th the crusaders anchored in the Bay of Lagos and mustered all their forces, 33 galleys, 27 triremes, 32 biremes, and 120 pinnaces and transports, carrying 50.000 soldiers and 30.000 mariners. Some nobles and merchant adventurers from England, France, and Germany took part. It was something like the conquest of Lisbon over again, a greater armada for a much smaller prey. On the 10th of August they were off Algeciras, still in Moorish hands, as part of the Kingdom of Granada, and on the 12th the lighter craft were over on the African coast, a strong wind nearly carried the heavier into Malaga, suited, the ancient septet, once repaired by Justinian was the chief port of Morocco and a center of commerce for the trade routes of the South and East, as well as a center of piracy for the Barbary Corsairs. It had long been an outpost of Muslim attack on Christendom, now that Europe was taking the offensive, it would be an outpost of the Spanish crusade against Islam. The city was built on the ordinary model, in two parts, a citadel and a port town, which together covered the neck of a long peninsula running out some three miles eastward from the African mainland and broadening again beyond the eastern wall of Ceuta into a hilly square of country. It was here, just where the land began to spread and form a natural harbor, that the Portuguese had planned their landing, and to this point Prince Henry, with great trouble, brought up the heavier craft. The strong currents that turned them off to the Spanish coast, proved good allies of the Europeans after all, for the Moors, who had been greatly startled at the first signs of attack and had hurried to get all the help they could from Fez and the upland, now fancied the Christian fleet to be scattered once for all, and dismissed all but their own garrison, while the Portuguese had been roused afresh to action by the fiery energy of King John, 
Prince Henry, and his brothers, on the night of the 15th of August, the Feast of the Assumption, the whole armada was at last brought up to the roads of Ceuta. Henry anchored off the lower town with his ships from Oporto, and his father, though badly wounded in the leg, rode through the fleet in a shallop, preparing all his men for the assault that was to be given at daybreak. Henry himself was to have the right of first setting foot on shore, where it was hoped the keys would be almost bared of defenders, for the main force was brought up against the castle, and every lure would rush to the fight where the King of Portugal was leading. While these movements were being settled in the armada, all through that night Ceuta was brilliantly lighted up, as if in fate. The governor in his terror could think of nothing better than to frighten the enemy with the show of an immensely populous city, and he had ordered a light to be kept burning in every window of every house. As the morning cleared and the Christian host saw the beach and harbor lined with moors, shouting defiance, the attack was begun by some volunteers who forgot the prince's claim. One Rui Gonçalves was the first to land and clear a passage for the rest. The infants, Henry and Edward, were not far behind and after a fierce struggle the Moslems were driven through the gate of the landing place back to the wall of the city. Here they rallied, under a Negro giant, who fought naked, but with the strength of many men, hurling the Christians to the earth with stones. At last he was brought down by a lance thrust, and the crusaders forced their way into Ceuta. But Henry, as chief captain on this side, would not allow his men to rush on plundering into the heart of the town, but kept them by the gates and sent back to the ships for fresh troops, who soon came up under Fernandez de Teta, who cheered on the princes, this is the sort of tournament for you, here you are getting a worthier knighthood than you could win at Lisbon, meantime the king, with Don Pedro, had heard of Henry's first success while still on shipboard, and ordered an instant advance on his side, after a still closer struggle than that on the lower ground, the moors were rooted, and Pedro pressed on through the narrow streets, just escaping death from the showers of heavy stones off the housetops, till he met his brothers in a mosque, or square adjoining, in the center of Ceuta. Then the conquerors scattered for plunder, and came very near losing the city altogether, but for the dogged courage of Henry, who twice broke up the Moslem rally with a handful of men, at last holding a gate on the inner wall between the lower town and the citadel, with seventeen, himself the eighteenth, Ceuta would have been lost after it had been gained. Both Henry and Pedro were reported dead, such as the end a soldier must not fear, was all their father said, as he stayed by the ships under the lee of the fortress, waiting, like Edward I.I.I., that Crippy, for what his sons would do, but towards evening it was known throughout the army that the princes were safe, that the port town had been gained, and that the Moors were slipping away from the citadel, Henry, Edward, and Pedro held a council, and settled to storm the castle next morning, but after sunset a few scouts, sent out to a reconnoiter, reported that all the garrison had fled, it was true, the governor, who had despaired all along of holding out, was no sooner beaten out of the lower city than he set the example of a strategic movement up the country, and when the Portuguese appeared at the fortress gate with axes and began to hew it down, only two lures were left inside, they shouted out that the Christians might save themselves that trouble, for they would open it themselves, and the standard of St. Vincent, patron of Lisbon, was planted, before dark came, upon the highest tower of Ceuta. King John offered Henry, for his gallant leadership, the honors of the day and the right to be knight before his brothers, but the prince, who had offered at the beginning of the storm to resign his command to Edward, as the eldest, begged that those who were before him in age might have their right, 
to be first in dignity as well, and the three infants received their knighthood in order of birth, each holding in his hands the bare sword that the queen had given him on her deathbed. It was the first Christian rite held in the great mosque of Zutu, now purified as the cathedral, and after it the town was thoroughly and carefully sacked from end to end. The plunder, of gold and silver and gems, stuffs and drugs, was great enough to make the common soldiers reckless of other things. The great jars of oil and honey and spices and all provisions were flung out into the streets, and a heavy rain swept away what would have kept a large garrison in plenty. The great nobles and the royal princes took back to Portugal some princely spoils. Henry's half-brother, now Count of Barcelos, afterwards more famous and more troublesome as Duke of Braganza, chose for his share some six hundred columns of marble and alabaster from the governor's palace. Henry himself gained in Ceuta a knowledge of inland Africa, of its trade routes and of the Gold Coast, that encouraged him to begin from this time the habit of coasting voyages. His earlier essays in exploration had been attempts like the unconnected and occasional efforts of Spanish and Italian daredevils. It is from this year that continuous ocean sailing begins, from the time of his stay in Ceuta. Henry works steadily and with foresight towards a nearer goal well foreseen, a first stage in his wider scheme which had been traversed by men he had known and talked with. They had come into Ceuta from Guinea over the sea of the desert, he would send his sailors to their starting point by the longer way, over the desert of the sea. Thus the victory at Ceuta is not without a very direct influence on our subject, and for the same reason, it was important that the conquerors, instead of raising the place, decided to hold it, when most of the council of war were for a safe and quick return to Portugal. One noble, Pedro de Menezes, a trusted friend of Henry's, struck upon the ground impatiently a stick of orange wood he had in his hands, by my faith, with the stick I would defend Ceuta from every morisco of them all. He was left in command, and thus kept open, as it were, to Europe and to the prince's view, one end of a great avenue of commerce and intercourse, which Henry aimed at winning for his country, when his ships could once reach Guinea, the other end of that same line was in his hands as well, the king and the princes left Ceuta in September of the same year September 2nd, 1415, but Henry's connection with his first battlefield was not yet over, Menezes found after three years sole command that the Moors were pressing him very hard, the king of Granada had sent 74 ships to blockade the city from the sea, and the troops of Fez were forcing their way into the lower town, Henry was hurriedly sent from Lisbon to its relief, while Edward and Pedro got themselves ready to follow him, if needed, from Lagos and the Algarve coast, but Ceuta had already saved itself, as the first suckers were sailing through the Straits of Gibraltar, Menezes contrived to send them word of his danger, the Berbers on the land side had mastered Almina, or the eastern part of the merchant town, while the Granada galleys had closed in upon the port itself. At this news Henry made the best speed he could, but he was only in time to see the rout of the Moors. Menezes and the garrison made a desperate sally directly they sighted the relief coming through the straits, the same appearance struck a panic into the enemy's fleet, and only one galley stayed on the African coast to help their landsmen who were thus left alone and without hope of succor on the eastern hills of the Ceuta Peninsula, cut off by the city from their Berber lives. When Henry landed, Almina had been won back and the last of the Granada Muslims cut to pieces. From that day Ceuta was safe in Christian hands, but the prince, after spending two months in the hope that he might find some more work to do in Africa, planned a daring stroke in Europe. Islam still owned in Spain the kingdom of Granada, too weak to reconquer the old western caliphate but too strong, 
as the last refuge of a conquered and once imperial race, to the uneasy prey of the Spanish kingdoms, and in that kingdom, Gibraltar, the rock of Tarak, was the most troublesome of Moorish strongholds. The Mediterranean itself was not fully secured for Christian trade and intercourse while the European pillar of the western straits was a Saracen fort. If Portugal was to conquer or explore in northern Africa, Gibraltar was as much to be aimed at as Utah. Both sides of the straits, Kelpie and Abila, must be in her hands before Christendom could expand safely along the Atlantic coasts. So Henry, in the face of all his counsel, determined to make the trial on his voyage back to Lisbon. But a storm broke up the fleet, and when it could be refitted and reformed, the time had gone by, and the prince obeyed his father's repeated orders and returned at once to court, for his gallantry and skill in the storm of Zutu. He had been made Duke of Vizu and Lord of Covilum, when King John first touched his own kingdom after the African campaign at Tavra, on the Algarve coast, with his brother Pedro, who shared his honors as Duke of Coimbra and Lord of the lands henceforward known as the Infantidu or Principality. Henry thus begins the line of dukes in Portugal, and among the other details of the war, his name is specially joined with that of an English fleet which he had enrolled as a contingent of his armada while recruiting four ships and men in the spring of 1415, in the same way as English crusaders had passed Lisbon just in time to aid in its conquest by Afonso Henriques, the great first king of Portugal in 1147. So now 27 English ships on their way to Syria were just in time to help the Portuguese make their first conquest abroad. Lastly, the results of the Ceuta campaign in giving positive knowledge of Western and Inland Africa to a mind like Henry's already set on the finding of a sea route to India, have been noticed by all contemporaries and followers, who took any interest in his plans. But it was not merely caravan news that he gained in these two visits of 1415 and 1418, both the Zerara the chronicler of his voyages and Diego Gomez, his lieutenant, the explorer of the Cape Verde Islands and of the Upper Gambia, are quite clear about the new knowledge of the coast now gained from Moorish prisoners. Not only did the prince get news of the passage of merchants from the coasts of Tunis to Timbuktu and to Cantor on the Gambia, which inspired him to seek the lands by the way of the sea, but also the Tani Moors or Azanagways his prisoners told him of certain tall palms growing at the mouth of the Senegal or Western Nile by which he was able to guide the caravels he sent out to find that river. By the time Henry was ready to return from Ceuta to Portugal for good and all, in 1418, there were clearly before his mind the five reasons for exploring Guinea given by his faithful Azurara. First of all was his desire to know the country beyond Cape Bajander, which till that time was quite unknown neither by books or by the talk of sailors. Second was his wish that if any Christian people or good ports should be discovered beyond that cape he might begin a trade with them that would profit both the natives and the Portuguese, for he knew of no other nation in Europe who trafficked in those parts. Thirdly, he believed the Moors were more powerful on that side of Africa than had been thought, and he feared there were no Christians there at all, so he was fain to find out how many and how strong his enemies really were. Fourthly, in all his fighting with the Moors he had never found a Christian prince to help him from that side of further Africa for the love of Christ, therefore he wished, if he could, to meet with such. Last was his great desire for the spread of the Christian faith and for the redemption of the vast tribes of men lying under the wrath of God. Behind all these reasons Azurar also believed in a sixth and deeper one, which he proceeds to state with all gravity, as the ultimate and celestial cause of the prince's work. For as his ascendant was Ares, 
that is in the house of Mars and the exaltation of the Sunday and as the said Mars is in Aquarius, which is the house of Saturn, it was clear that my Lord should be a great conqueror, and a searcher out of things hidden from other men, according to the craft of Saturn, in whose house he was, footnote 35, the attempts of Henry and his family to conquer a land empire in northern Africa are not to be separated from the maritime and coasting explorations, they were two aspects of one idea, two faces of the same enterprise, in the same way the new bishopric of Ceuta, now founded, was a first step towards the organized conversion of the heathen of the south, the Franciscans have founded the Seal Fez and Morocco in 1233, but it had not till now been followed up, chapter IX, Henry Settlement at Sagres and First Discoveries, 1418-28, whatever the prince out to his stay at you to be on the general suggestion and encouragement to take up a life profession of discovery, it was at any rate put into practice on his second and last return 1418, from that time to the end of his life he became a recluse from the court life of Lisbon, though he soon gathered round himself a rival court, of science and seamanship, the old, sacred cape, of the Romans, then called Sagres, now the Cape Street Vincent, of Nelson and Modern Maps, was his chosen home for the next forty years, though he seems to have passed a good deal of his time in his port of Lagos, close by, in 1419 King John made him governor for life of the Algarves the southern province of Portugal and the new governor at once began to rebuild and enlarge the old naval arsenal, in the neck of the Cape, into a settlement that soon became the prince's town, in Lagos. His ships were built and manned, and there, and in Sagres itself, all the schemes of discovery were thought out, the maps and instruments corrected, and the accounts of past and present travelers compared by the prince himself. His results then passed into the instructions of his captains and the equipment of his carabels. The sacred cape, which he now coronized, was at any rate a good center for his work of ocean voyaging. Here, with the Atlantic washing the land on three sides, he was well on the scene of action. There were buildings on Sagres headland as old as the 11th century, Greek, 